Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And jumping on the bandwagon with us as we chase a brachiosaurus through the streets of London, it is Ian and Ethan from the Best Film Ever podcast. Hey guys, how you doing? Hey, how are you doing? I'm good because I'm coming second, so I know what I can't talk about. <laughs> there you go. If, if if we're jumping on the bandwagon, can 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 I be a guy with a sonic screwdriver doing that? Is that all right? Oh yeah, for sure. And sure. I have to correct. Excellent. Actually, we need to uh, already have a correction. That was a brontosaurus, not a brachiosaurus. Oh, oh. <laughs> wow! I don't know my dinos. Apparently, yeah. I don't think the movie did either. To be fair. But no, this is very true. This is very true. Well, we, I won't give too much away at this point, but before we get to the film, gents, you know, tell us a little bit about the best film ever podcast. Oh, Ethan, do you want to do this or, sh- or should I do this? I, I, I was going to give it to you since it's, uh, it's, it's your show. I, I just come on every so often. Yeah, that's fair enough. All right. So best film ever podcast <laughs> is a podcast that I do with several of my friends now. Uh, and since my, my name's Ian, I teach film studies professionally. It's, it's what I do. I analyze films for a living. It's a pretty good gig, actually. Uh, and so it started when myself and my friend Liam, who I go and see a lot of uh, films with, we would sit after a movie is sort of over and talk about the relative merits of what we just saw. And he's kind of a traditional, just casual film fan. And I'm trying to point out all these things and he's going, no, but you're not, you don't get it. It's, it's about this. And so we kind of thought it actually make a lot of sense if we started documenting some of the, um, some of these conversations we were having and that's more or less a podcast was born. And then through the wonders of um, pandemics and lockdowns mm. uh, sort of everybody, <laughs> we, we had some friends who also want, had something or had needed something to do. And just with schedules being the way they were, it sort of grew into a rolling cast of about four to five. And we go through a film a week and we rate it and try and determine, can we come to a consensus on what the best film ever is? And that, in a nutshell, is best film ever. Okay. So, I mean, at the time of recording, you just put out uh, Fighting With My Family, the WWE Dwayne The Rock Johnson funded film. I admittedly haven't heard this episode just yet, but could you spoil if it is the best film ever? Uh, no, Fighting My Family is not <laughs> the best film ever. I think we all agreed it was it, w- it was a good film. No one went, I didn't like it. I just think no one's going to call this high cinema. It was just, it was a fun little movie, but timely. It is WrestleMania week, and so it felt like the right time to drop this, especially oh, as we are in Norfolk, which is uh, just a stone's throw from where the real life story of Paige, a.k.a. Soraya Knight Bevis, uh, took place. So it all seemed like the universe was coming together for us. So we threw it on up there with a, a body slam and a, and a WrestleMania sign point. But it didn't lay off the smack of down. It did not lay off the <laughs> smack of down, no. Now I'm curious, for people that want to dive into the podcast, if there's any episodes you would recommend people to start with. Ooh, um, I mean, you can go all the way back to episode one and hear our very humblest of beginnings, which we start with Back to the Future, which I thought was actually a really decent uh, starting point, but other ones that have seemed to prove uh, quite popular. Uh, the Breakfast Club uh, has been popular. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other ones. Silence of the Lambs was definitely a good one. If you want one where we have some definite contention and we 
we we we we do not agree and we quite vehemently disagree uh train spotting is is, is a good one to have <laughs> on that one where we've actually had to create a rule about look if you just think you're not going to get on with the film just from from the off uh, you're allowed to take a week off that's kind of the uh <laughs> the sort of rule. and then i show up and to then, replace in, them in case of emergency break glass and ethan comes in as our super sub <laughs> if you will he's he's our he's our emilio estevez in the mission impossible one sort of franchise but with a much better much better endpoint to him. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's a very short-lived appearance. <laughs> it is a very short-lived appearance. <laughs> I wish I could have enacted that rule for uh, the Ipcris file, but mm. hey ho, yeah, <laughs> here we are. Um, now, before we talk about the spy side of life, that you do have another podcast which kind of connects to what we're doing today. Yeah, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? As if one podcast born out of uh, lockdown wasn't enough. Uh, once lockdown hit, uh, we kind of sat around with not much to do. And it just happened to be that this, the UK went into lockdown the same day that Disney Plus launched in the UK. Mm-hmm. And I'm still not convinced those two things aren't unrelated. And so um, we sort of jumped on and went, let's go ahead and start going through some of this Disney stuff on Disney Plus. And uh, we release an episode a week on uh, that. Uh, more often than not, a Disney animated classic, but we have dipped our toe in the world of Pixar, of Marvel, of some live action films. And once a week now, we sort of do a a simulcast, a co-production between Best Film Ever and Talking to Mickey on um, whatever the Disney series du jour is. So right now uh, we call it Falcon and the Weekly Soldier. And that is, uh, Ethan leads that one, actually. He's, that's the one time yeah, I get to my, of, my good old show. Yeah, that's the one where I get to just sort of sit in the, in the, in the co-host chair and, and uh, just, you know, interrupt whenever I feel like the spotlight has More often than not, but I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> but uh, so that kind of links us, I think, more naturally into the film we are discussing today. Well, okay, before we make the, the, uh, the, uh, the Jurassic Leap, if you will, into this film, we're a spy movie podcast and you guys know that. So I'm curious, I'll put you on the spot. Ian first, what's your favorite spy film? Oh, favorite spy film. Uh, I'm going to go, it's probably going to be because it was one of the first ones I ever saw that I was old enough to kind of get what was going on. I'm going to throw some love to a mostly overlooked Bond now, I'd say, um, in the sense that he started off strong and then it got ridiculously cartoony. I'm going to give it to Pierce Brosnan's debut in Goldeneye. Uh, it might just be the strength of the villain, but I just thought as far, I love it when heroes it, like come against their counterpoint, the evil version of themselves in, in sort of the, the end battle. And so I loved the game of chess between Sean Bean and um, Alec Trevelyan and Pierce Brosnan and James Bond. And, you know, Bond wasn't ridiculous and stupid and having every gadget to get him out of whatever. It felt more grounded. So I, I really appreciated uh, GoldenEye. So that one's mine. Yeah, we're big fans of that one here too. Uh, what about you, Ethan? Um, I I prepped for this because I knew I'd get stumped by this, and I'm gonna go sort of similar with Ian. The first spy film that I really saw in the cinema was uh, Skyfall, and that was the film that made me go, I think I might really like Bond, and I went back and started to really get into Bond, and I still think it's one of the strongest for Craig and also just for the whole franchise as a whole for what got a lot of my generation into it as well. Right. And then kind of it tum- it tumbles with Spectre, but I still think it's solid <laughs> for that. It, it's it's solid for that era. It's hard to it's hard to argue with Skyfall. It's really the one that yeah. brought a lot of people back into the fold after after years of Quantum of Solace and Octopussies. 
don't forget Casino Royale and the world's most unrealistic <laughs> poker game that took place. Well, it was like it was like an event <laughs> film because it was the fiftieth as well. So everyone in Britain had to go and see this film. Yeah, it was funny because they they made a big big deal of the fiftieth anniversary that year, and it's funny because Scott and I are also Star Trek fans. And like a few years later, you had the 50th anniversary of Star Trek and they were like, do not mention a 50th anniversary. We are hiding this from the public. And then Star Trek Beyond kind of, you know, piddled out at the box office and like Skyfall, (laughs) they made it a celebration and that movie made like over a billion dollars. So lesson to studios, if you have a 50 year old property, champion that 50th anniversary. Lean into the window, I say. Well, absolutely. Final question then on that subject. Seeing as you both answered Bonds, Ian, you went with a Pierce Brosnan film. Ethan, you went with a Daniel Craig film. Are they your Bonds, or do you have a different choice? Oh, for years, I would have given my answers being Roger Moore, actually, which I know puts me very much in in the minority. I kind of like a little less rough, and I, like I don't want James Bond to be Captain Kirk, which is kind of what Connery's Bond is—you know, sleep with the women and beat up the men with a fist fight. And I kind—I I guess if 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 I can continue that theory, I guess Roger Moore is a bit more like Picard <laughs> than, uh, <laughs> and so I, I like the suave Debonair Bond. As I get older and go back and revisit the, the films, they're just from a storytelling perspective not strong enough to hold up. But I think at the end of the day, a Bond has to be the merit of his of his films put together so i think i am going to still lean into into pierce brosnan as my bond choice uh dependent on how they see daniel craig off um mm. it's just mm. a shame he, that his bond has been so miserable the entire run not as in like the the films they've been great but just you know his his portrayal of bond is just kind of the grumpy emo kid in the corner the whole time I think we were deprived of Roger Moore running through a wall to chase the bad guy down. <laughs> uh, what about you, Ethan? Uh, I really do like. Uh, I like that I said his film. I, could, I love. I love Daniel Craig a lot, and I think it's because out of all of the Bonds that I've seen in the past, I'm I'm from a more like I don't know if progressive generation is the right word, but I I really don't like some of those older Bonds just because they are kind of disgusting for me but i can still enjoy the the story but daniel craig has something to him that i just i love as a as like a not gritty but just action heavy no nonsense kind of character it's because he's blonde isn't it yeah yeah <laughs> he's like a potato in a suit half the time but he is <laughs> he's so good at it <laughs> so, so what you're saying is you're willing to forgive a film if it's of its time be careful with this answer, Ethan. I know what you're about to do, and I know where this is leading. It's a trap. So I'm, I'm going to choose not to answer this yet. <laughs> Ethan went no comment on that one, I think. Um, okay, well, I think that pivots us beautifully onto, of course, Cam, we're doing Casino Royale, right? Uh, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's, what, that's, what, that's what I prepared for, isn't it? Maybe later down yeah. the road. <laughs> No, what what are we doing, Cam? We are doing the 1975 Disney film, One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, now, hold it back, hold it back, hold it back. I buried the lead with that one. You did. Well, just for you, Ethan, the rest of us might have really liked it. Yeah, you're going to be awfully embarrassed at the end when you're the only one who's got a dissenting viewpoint. Oh, God, I hope... That one no on the knock list question is just going to look silly on you. 
Um, well, I'll throw it out to everyone. I, I mean, I wasn't born when this film came out. Does anyone have any prior knowledge of this film before covering it for this podcast? No. Not even the littlest bit. Cam? Yeah. Um, I mean, I am really, like, really into Disney stuff. I, during the pandemic, have been sitting and watching all these old live action movies with my sister. Um, I had never heard of this movie. And I remember when you floated it as a suggestion, like you just brought it up. Have you heard of this? And I was like, no, never. I, I guess we could cover that. So it, it seems like it's one that Disney makes available. Um, it was very easy to get a copy of just on Amazon Prime here, but um, not that well known. No. Well, speaking of floaters, um, <laughs> sorry, that, that's a British joke, Cam, and this film is filled with them. So you're yeah, probably yeah. going to miss half of them. <laughs> it, it really is. Um, okay, well, let me talk about the synopsis and then we'll get into how this film came to be. Then, then we'll talk about how we feel about it because there's some things I think we need to discuss first. Hmm. But here is the letterbox synopsis. One of our dinosaurs is missing. Escaping from China with a microfilm of the formula for the mysterious Lotus X, Lord Southmere, a queen's messenger, is chased by a group of Chinese spies. Yeah, I mean, I sure, I guess that's the mm-hmm. that's the setup. That's not really the plot synopsis, but that's the setup. Sounds pretty innocuous. Uh, fine. Uh huh. And then we get to the film. Cam, do you have any information on the film for us? Uh, so this is the era where Disney just kind of cranks out like five live action films a year. So like in terms of behind the scenes production notes, there's really nothing. Um, what I can say is, so Walt Disney had died in 1966 and his brother Roy died in 71. So there was kind of this like period of time where Disney Studios didn't have any sort of visionary overseeing them. So this was the Don Tatum era. And I don't think anyone ever references Don Tatum now. Like this was not a uh, point of pride in the Disney company. But nonetheless, um, they were, as I said, cranking out many live action films. And uh, they put out one in 1974 called Herbie Rides Again, which was the highest grossing Disney movie of that year. It made $38.3 million. And the team behind that, director Robert Stevenson, who had done Mary Poppins, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, Island at the Top of the World, um, he signed on to do this one as well with writer Bill Walsh. And Bill Walsh was also a producer who'd worked on several of those movies with Stevenson, as well as stuff like That Darn Cat. And they had the novel called The Great Dinosaur Robbery from 1970. Now, this novel is written by David Forrest. It's credited as, but it's actually two people. It's David Eliads and Robert Forrest Webb. They were um, British national journalists who wrote this story. And it seems from my research, the Great Dinosaur Robbery book was actually significantly different. It had much more adult sex and violence. <laughs> which <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Does that shock you based on the movie you saw? That's what this film needed. <laughs> that would have saved it. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, apparently the nannies and the spies were up to some hijinks in that uh, story. And um, it was also set in New York in the 1970s. It was very much about tackling um, communist China of the period. And Disney, for some reason, decided to, I guess, you know, Disney loves nostalgia. And so they wanted to put it, I guess, in 19, like just at the end of, just after World War One. 
um, for reasons. I'm not exactly clear why, to be perfectly honest with you. <laughs> it, it takes us back to a time when we were winning at something. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and they changed the title of the book to um, to its current title because of the film One of Our Aircraft is Missing from 1942, which had starred Peter Ustinov and Hugh Burden. Hugh Burden pops up just at the start of this movie. He's the um, driver for um, um, for the Lord Southmere, who gets kidnapped. Um, so those two actors had appeared in this movie, which was a Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger film from back in the day. Those two directed The Red Shoes, Matter of Life and Death. They were a fantastic duo. So they made the title of this film a tribute to their work. Um, so... Other than that, I mean, you had Peter Ustinov, which was a Disney go-to guy. He'd done Blackbeard's Ghost for them. He voiced Prince John in Robin Hood, and he would work with them again for The Treasure of Matacombe. And then you had Helen Hayes, who, who was a two-time Oscar winner for 1932's The Sin of Madeleine Claudette, and also 1970's Airport. Um, I don't know why she won an Oscar for Airport, but she was also in Herbie Rides Again with Stevenson and Bill Walsh overseeing that film. So maybe we should be talking about Herbie Rides again. It seems like that really spawned this thing. <laughs> See, I really like Herbie and Herbie Rides again. And now knowing that, I kind of want to just watch that now. Oh, the Herbie movies are so formulaic, really? Yeah, they're a bit of fun and I can hear the music uh, in my head right now. It's just a bit of joy. It's talking about hearing the music in your head. I mean, when we talk about the score for this movie, I mean, <laughs> all, all eight bars of it. I mean, oh, jeez. Yeah, um, I've seen a few of the Herbies. I don't know that I've seen Rides Again, but I've definitely seen Ghost Bananas and Ghost of Monte Carlo. So I can speak yes. to those two. Um, so the authors of the book were very disappointed in the final film. <laughs> so we'll, we'll talk about why. Honestly, I don't know if it's for the reasons we're going to talk about, but nonetheless, they were not that thrilled with the movie. Um, <laughs> as for box office, whenever you're tracking box office of this era, it gets a little muddy. This movie, though, I will say was not a particularly big success at all. It made about $5.5 million. So it would have fallen somewhere in like the 30s for the year. Um, the number one movie was Jaws. Number two was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Number three was Shampoo. Some other notables down at around number six, you had Three Days of the Condor, which we've covered on the podcast. And then of the other live action Disney films, let's stack them up and see how one of our dinosaurs is missing compared. So at the box office, you had at number 10 on the box office top 10, Apple Dumpling Gang with Tim Conway and Don Knotts. So that ruled the live action Disney roost that year. Then later down the chart, you had Escape to Witch Mountain, which was another hit. Then you had Strongest Man in the World with Kurt Russell. And then after a little bit of a gap, you have One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing. And then down at the bottom, you have Ride a Wild Pony, which I have never heard of. <laughs> we look forward to being invited on to review that film too. <laughs> 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 I'm going to check if it's on Disney Plus so I can throw that one to you at some point during the there, podcast. There we go. <laughs> That'll be the film that we're invited back onto your show for. Basically. Yeah, there's a lot of bad shout. <laughs> Vengeance is a dish best served cold. Indeed. It is funny, though, when you look up box office on this movie. Most movies from 1975, their box office stats are very easy to find. This one is not. So it's like uh, no one really cared about giving accurate data for this movie, it seems. You. You might say it's missing. Mm, you mm. could indeed. 
Um, so that kind of wraps up the box office. A couple other notes I will mention. Um, the dinosaur skeleton used in the film wound up being used in Star Wars. It's in the background when C-3PO is waving towards the sand crawler. That is the large skeleton in the background, the skeleton from this movie. I know exactly what creature that's supposed to be, and that's going to rock my life until I die now. That is the crate dragon, yeah. Oh my god. There is another Star Wars connection to this film. There is. I'm scared. Yeah, uh, maybe we'll talk about that in a bit, at least the one I'm talking about. I, I don't know, Scott, do you want to reveal now that you've teased it? Well, I'm trying to remember. I've got the. I'm trying to find the right actor now. It, but one of them played the Emperor, I believe. In yeah, that's the Empire right. Strikes Back. Yeah, Clive Ravel oh. um, did play the Emperor in the now erased version of Empire Strikes Back. Now we have the uh, Ian McDiarmid version in all of the Blu-rays and everything. But back in the day, yeah, that was Clive Ravel playing the Emperor. He got Lucas. Ah. Did not know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. And uh, it was just a voice, though, because I believe they used a woman's face with a chimpanzee's eyes superimposed over top. Yeah. Yeah. It's this really weird, disgust. It looks like a frog monster or something. Yeah. It... yeah. <laughs> I, so... I can talk Star Wars forever. You guys have created a monster now. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever stops us from talking about this film, I'm all right with it. <laughs> I'm just like turned on it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this movie, as we'll talk about, um, you know, Peter Ustinov is the star of this movie as a Chinese spy. And so we will be talking about the yellow face aspects of this movie. But Peter Ustinov, after this film, decided this gimmick kind of works for me. So he actually did it again in 1981, playing Charlie Chan in Charlie Chan, Curse of the Dragon Queen. So there's an interesting legacy to the end, really, of Peter Ustinov's career. But I guess we can dive oh, into no. as we go forward. Yeah. Well, I think I don't think we should really like wait until later. I think it's something to address now, mm. personally. Uh, funnily enough, we're recording this the same week that Remo Williams came out for us. So there's this double of of Yellowface in the same week for me. So it feels like a lot, unfortunately. Um, and you know, Remo Williams came out in '85. Was it Cam? Yeah. Yeah, so 10 years after this. Uh, unforgivable then, and I think it's completely unforgivable and tasteless in this too. Yeah. Yes. I would agree a whole percent. Whole hundred percent. I'm just curious, like, from you, you know, maybe starting with Ethan, like, were you shocked when, like, this movie, you know, got to where it was going with the setup there? I, I, was, I was warned beforehand about this. And I still wasn't expecting it as much. I was like, oh, he'll just be like in the face, but he won't be. I can't imagine he'll be doing like some crazy accent or just randomly spouting like nonsense to make it seem like he's sounding Chinese or doing Kung Fu moves. Like We watched this maybe, I think, three weeks after the whole like Stop Asian Hate Movement has started in America. Mm. And I was like, oh, mm. wow, this is either amazingly timed or very poorly timed. And I'm not sure which one it is yet. Mm, yeah um yeah it's it's a really unfortunate thing I, it reminds me a lot of things that i used to see on television in my youth that would now just never get played it just was like british tv in the late 80s used to have things kind of similar to this and depictions kind of like this and then they just sort of stopped happening around the 90s which i'm thankful for should have happened sooner but um it, it didn't feel that alien to me because it feels like something that British TV had done before. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I was kind of bowled over because 
it, I find in my experience watching films over the course of my life, you do run into these yellow face cases um, in film, but I find more often than not, it's like a small supporting character or something. Um, outside of like, you know, I've mentioned before, like the um, Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany, when we're talking about like the real caricature stuff, that's the one that always jumps to the forefront of my mind. I feel like a lot of the case, it was like some side player would show up, you'd kind of cringe and it was, you know, they were in and out of the movie and like, just a few seconds but this was a case where i was like holy crap this is the driving force of an entire film that's shocking um i'm just curious you know ian do you have something to say on that uh, it's just remarkable that most recently uh the thing that i recall is how i met your mother in their final season i think it was uh did a ridiculously uh poorly thought out um kung fu homage and resulted in several of the actors applying yellow face in that which spawned the hashtag how i met your racism um but if i can jump on board what was said a little bit earlier living in, in the uk now uh or even just seeing the um peter Ustinov's portrayal it did harken back to things i felt i've seen before as much as when i was warned i went oh geez that's gonna be rough when i saw it i went oh i forgot about this and uh, we yeah. don't see it on TV anymore. I will say caricatures like this are still somewhat alive and well in pantomimes. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, there was one last year that I remember getting a bit of controversy online. And 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 you will hear that accent, and it might not do the yellow face, I'm not sure. But 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 you will see it, and it's just a – it does harken back to an, to an older time. Um, but it was uh, a little bit – well, more than a little bit, it was it was it was quite the uh, culture clash, uh, culture shock to go back and sort of re re revisit this uh, in a thing where I, what I wasn't expecting was I wasn't expecting the film to frame Ustinov eventually as someone I was supposed to root for. That's the part I wasn't expecting. <laughs> <laughs> and when it pivoted to that, I went, "Oh, I'm supposed to be I'm supposed to be rooting for the guy now. Oh, this is this is this is this was a lot easier when he was the villain because at least I could sort of channel my my um disgust at what i'm seeing towards the character but now i'm clearly being told i'm supposed to root for him i don't know what to make of this i i found it fascinating in the movie too because they present these characters as so bumbling and just you know these grotesque caricatures that through much of it i was like well i'm not feeling any sort of tension in any of this you know or any sort of danger from what's going on because the characters the villains are portrayed as so bumbling and generally you want your antagonist to pose some sort of threat and that is completely absent. So I almost feel like their decision to go this route, like undercut everything the movie's trying to do. And yeah, when they pivot to him being like their friend, it's like, okay, I guess. Like I have absolutely no ability to connect with this character on any sort of emotional level. So I guess, sure. It's almost exactly like a pantomime. Now, yeah. now that you've break it down, like it's the exact same thing. Like this, I don't, I don't, entirely know what sort of the racial tensions were in the 70s but it feels almost propaganda-ish to a point where it's like these are the bad guys they're always these kind of things because disney have done that before especially with like depictions of yellow face and cartoons i remember but it's never fear them it's always laugh at them so yeah. much so that the hero isn't lord lord southmere it's this it's this trilogy of of grannies who are able to sort of walk in and walk out of the stronghold with very little interference not to jump ahead 
but just going like you know and the idea about how how much tension can you really feel towards the danger that lord southman is supposed to be put into when these three grannies just able to sort of uh, sorry nannies not grannies nannies are able to walk in and kind of outsmart outmaneuver outthink the villains it's it's a it's a joke that the first time you see it is is slightly amusing but then when you realize it's the only joke they've got lined up really for for the whole film um much like the cast it gets old fast Hmm. yeah so i mean we're going to get into the film in a second but i just think it was uh, it was worth talking about this at the beginning to set the agenda as to how we feel about this because yeah we're going to talk about the peter ustinov's character and and some of the scenes that he's in but the portrayal the depiction horrible and and it's not something you should see in cinema and that's how we feel about it and i i just think it's really interesting that disney has gotten you know obviously a lot of deserved flack for song of the south over the years the fact that they've buried that film and have you know are going to be revamping the splash mountain ride in disneyland because of its ties to that film i just think it's really bizarre that Disney is a company that is more than happy to bury films from its past in the vault and just completely, you know, guys, we are not showing this to anyone. And yet this movie is very easily available. I really am just fascinated by the corporate thinking of Disney making that the case. You know, I'm not someone who's big on censorship of art in any way, shape or form, but Disney has also proven that they are more than willing to do that if it comes to protecting their brand. I'm I think it's bizarre that this is a movie they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, just go to Apple Movies and rent it for $4.99. Why not? It is interesting they don't put this one on Disney+. Plus. Well, I don't think it'll ever be on Disney+. Plus. No, no, no. So, so, <laughs> so uh, no, absolutely. I, I, I agree. But as far as like, you know, they're going, yeah, you can have it out there, but you're not coming to us. You have to go to that place to buy it because you're not watching it on, 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 on our service. So I think there's something in that. I mean, uh, we we famously, I think, to, to listeners of our podcast, went back and reviewed Dumbo a few months back. And mm. uh, some of the uh, lyrics in Dumbo when the uh, roostabouts are putting up the uh, cir- circus tent and it's just a parade of black faceless um, men mm-hmm. who are calling themselves apes who can't read and write. I'm going, oh, for, for, forget a disclaimer. How is this song allowed to even still be still be in this and so it becomes this really weird thing when what do you do when the nostalgia of your youth and you take a look and you go oh my word it's actually you know correlated with just some of the worst representation of people you can you can really imagine uh in this one you could sort of argue um that they were trying to be funny i suppose but in some of the other ones, you're like, I don't know how you rescue that. I don't know how you rescue some of these portrayals that are just clearly meant to be hurtful. Well, it's interesting because I spoke about this on the Remo episode, but you look at the Ian Fleming novels. Take Dr. No, for instance. That's got some really horrible terminology in it and uh, some horrible depictions uh, of certain uh, nationalities and such. But there's a disclaimer at the beginning that's written by a professor. uh says about, you know, you should take it as a, as a piece of art of its time and kind of puts a preface on it and allows you to try and read the book as an artifact of its time. I don't think one of our dinosaurs is missing is something that should be necessarily preserved. <laughs> I, I don't think there should be an essay before the film. I think the difference is with some of those other ones, they're more sort of pieces of art that you can see as like really good jumping points for like cinema. This is, this is not that. There is no saving quality to like give it any historic value whatsoever on like some of like the older Disney films which were 
more like there were pieces of of art because of their their animation yeah. quality and the mm. fact it wasn't done. This is just this is just another sort of live action comedy they were pumping out for for years on end. Uh, I will shout out to uh, another podcast called Without a Mouse. I was listening to their episode on this film earlier today, and they recorded this episode back in 2019. So this is pre Disney Plus. Uh, and I think at that point there was a, a Disney Life. I think that was their streaming service. I don't know if you guys know anything about that, anyone? Oh, yeah. I used to use that when it was because uh, that was just like really early Disney Plus before anything had even been arranged. Well, this film was available on Disney Life. Oh. Uh, for free. So once you subscribed, you just got it. Yeah. Hmm. So they haven't made any attempts to hide it until Disney Plus came around. Yeah. That's concerning. Makes you wonder. It was interesting pulling up uh, Roger Ebert's review from the uh, of this movie from the time. And he has a line just at the end. He says, you can't get stirred up about a movie like this. It's inoffensive. It's pleasant enough. And it's like what oh so it shows you though that Jeez. what to us is maybe shocking in 2021 in 1975 and roger ebert was known to be fairly progressive in a lot of his writing yeah. on film um to him this was just like yeah yeah just a silly little movie you know like it didn't jump out the way it does to us now i think that's just interesting oh absolutely i mean i think there is that sort of uh caveat nothing that excuses this far from it and no. as we said we said a few times over this film contains no cinematic merit by which it needs to be preserved <laughs> we need to make sure we, we hang on to it but um yeah i think it's 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 a product of its time i don't think ustinov and, and disney were breaking the mold when they came up with this if anything i think it's probably a very lazy caricature for for the time they were just adding one more log on onto the fire um it's a shame. I usually like Ebs. He has a couple hits and misses, and I think everyone's allowed. Maybe not with this. <laughs> well, yeah, even mine. Like, this guy actually probably saw like the the gamut of films coming on. So actually, probably if he's saying mm. is relatively inoffensive. I mean, he's seeing the other sort of contemporaries of this, where this is occurring in equal or 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 worse measure. And he's probably as opposed to us, we're looking at it in a vacuum today. He's looking at it within the pantheon of film that was of its time at that time. And I, I'd imagine he's probably not that incorrect by say, sort of suggesting that it's sort of par for the course. Now, thankfully, we look back now and we go par for the course sucks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I think it's fascinating, too, that, uh, you know, just in this, the kind of the spy movie, you know, genres we work on this podcast. In 1973, you have Enter the Dragon come out with Bruce Lee, which creates an icon and shows the idea of what uh, you know an asian leading man could be in the future of film and this follows two years later it's so so seems backwards yeah it's also just two years removed from live and let die which is um mm. <laughs> uh, i find it to be a fairly problematic film <laughs> so um yeah and when you're removed from uh, the man with the golden gun which also has some problematic stuff as well yeah yeah the other thing as well, I mean, I suppose we'll we'll jump over to the review in a second, but have any of you got any experience with the carry-on films? I don't. I I grew up with them, and I've never gone back because as a kid, I didn't find them funny. As I got older, I went, oh, that's just... Like, I grew... I was in that era that was raised when Little Britain and, uh, like, Come Fly With Me was a mm -hmm. thing, and I went back last year and watched them. And I was very shocked that even in 2010, that was still being let slide because there was like straight up really bad yellow face in that too. Yep, absolutely. So it's, that is 
like 40 years difference that was still going on. So it was one of those things I went, yeah, gonna happen. As a transplanted Canadian, I think all I know about the Carry On films is that A, they're not a very good quality, and B, I believe they're, what I know of is that they're ridiculously misogynistic, I think. That's about all I know. And slightly homophobic. Okay. Everything's like some kind of sex reference or like, or like, just like the biggest innuendos you can do. I remember there's a scene, I think it's like Doc Cotton from Coronation Street mm -hmm. is like, her bra just flings off and that's the big joke. That happens more than once. And that happens like every, yeah, I think it was like every film that happens mm -hmm. and it's just... Well, Ugh. just for the North American listeners, because I know like for over here, like I, I'd never heard of the Carry On films and I know there's a Carry On spying we'll probably cover at some point in the future. But um, could you guys just maybe sum up what the Carry On films are for those who aren't familiar with them? Pain. <laughs> See, okay. I I don't know. I don't know if I come from that angle on that one. I, I, I don't know. I was raised with the Carry On films on in the background of my parents' houses you know, um, houses. There actually was two, to be fair. Um, and they were always around on television, carry on spying, carry on camping, carry on whatever. And that was just like the baseline for humor. Right. And so I feel like those films really, well, I mean, look at Joan Sims, one of the main actors in this film. She was in almost all of the carry on films. But like, what are the carry on films? So... Every film is different. They have almost the same cast running throughout. And it's basically like, it's kind of hard to give you an idea, but like an anthology series of different situations. And they're just cross comedies based on that situation. Uh, so like there'll be a hospital, there'll be a holiday camp, there'll be a spy. You get the idea. So it's kind of just like we present a scenario and it's sort of just a clothesline for gags throughout. Yeah. It's like 90 minutes of jokes. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. It's like, you know, those of old, I say old, like 80s, 90s American comedies where you get a load of sort of up and coming comedians to do something like um, with Wet Hot American Summer. It's sort of like that, but like consistent for a couple of years. We have it still on BritBox, which is our streaming thing, and they have a load of content warnings. I'm seeing which like contains language, sexual references, racial imagery, stereotypes and homophobia. Like every single one of those now has that like warning for all of those i think there's like 12 films now or something I, I feel like we're kind of digging into something here i i kind of want to talk about before we get to the film i know it we, this might get cut it's up to cam but when we're reviewing films and i don't know how you guys feel about it as well do you like to take it as a piece of work from its time or do you try and hold it up to a more contemporary uh, you know lens what do you what do you like to do Who's the panelist in our pod, basically? Uh, so I think Liam is very much one to argue that uh, these things are, are, are of their time. And uh, I'm likely to lend him an assist on that one and go for the, for, for the maybe not to the extreme that we're talking about here. And one of our dinosaurs is missing. Mm. But if we were talking, let's say, um, let's talk about like James Bond, Goldeneye, the, the classic girl, good girl, bad girl, the fact that he's a womanizer, um, all those sorts of things. We go, these are products of their time. It's a form of escapism. Uh, we can't put 2020 morals on a 1995 film or earlier, so on and so forth. Uh, we need to realize the, the sort of time frame and the context which they were made. Um, 
Georgia and I think Ethan, if I uh, you feel free to, to correct me if, if I'm speaking out of turn here, I think as the younger members of our panel are more likely to as people who didn't live through that 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 era and haven't seen that necessarily slow progression where it's all for them kind of like a history book and it just feels very jarring what they're seeing composed to what they know to be right uh, today are more likely to come at it with a uh, critical eye and 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 say this 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 isn't on and we can't excuse it for that um so i i think overall we just i don't think we take a stance we just try to have that conversation mm. yeah i it's kind of what ian said but like a bit of both because whenever i see films i try and be like okay this film came out in this this era it might not look as good it might have some outdated things i'll still try and see it as a piece of art um but then i'll also be like this wouldn't fly now so there's sort of a there's a back and forth for me of this might be done well, but also there are issues now which might bring it down. My uh, my girlfriend is black, and we watched Dumbo recently, and I forgot about all the issues. And she loves Dumbo, mm -hmm. and she was like, "I completely understand the product of the time. I hate this one thing, but it's still I love the character of Dumbo in the movie itself." Which, since I've gone kind of gone to that thing of I can understand, I won't accept it, but I can see why it's there, and then see the film overhaul. But then I'll take it down a couple pegs because that one that one issue that's very glaring now which wouldn't slide yeah i find um because i watch a lot of classic film you, you always want to take i think the social norms of the time in into consideration with the film and i think there's a lot of classic films that you would point to that have problematic elements but you can understand what led to those decisions and to me it often falls more on do those decisions the ones that haven't aged well have do they overwhelm the film and you know, in certain cases, there's movies, you know, you reference Dumbo. Does it overwhelm the film or is it a, a moment in the film that you need to have the sort of the conversation about afterwards? That's up to the individual viewer. But like, I can look at a movie like Dumbo and say, okay, there's a lot here that is still, you know, really interesting artistically. Um, whereas then there's other movies that you look at and you just go like, holy smokes, like this is so much a product of, it, of its time. It's basically unwatchable now. And uh, maybe that leads us into this film. But Scott, I want to hear from you. I suppose I'm I'm somewhat new to the reviewing films on a podcast, although I've been reviewing films in my head all my life when I've been watching them. And I, I do try and look at it as a piece of its time. I mean, with this, for instance, and I think, Cam, what you said actually really resonates with me, is does it overpower the film? And I would say it does. But then you look at, uh, I'm going to lean back on Remo Williams again. And, you know, Joel Gray made a choice to come and take that role on. And he said he didn't want to do it. And then he came and did it in 85. He shouldn't have done it. And I think that, again, took me away from the film. Um, but then I also kind of think, like, if this comes out at the same time as the carry-on films, this is exactly the kind of thing they were doing. And people were eating up the carry-on films and still watch them today. Hmm. So it's... It, I feel like there's like a give and take a little bit. I, I almost kind of want to not lean as heavy on this film. But then every time I just see Peter Ustinov's character on screen, I just cringe a little bit. Oh, this film's got plenty more problems besides that as well. So don't yeah. worry, we can lean on it in a lot of places. <laughs> well, why don't we dive into sort of the film itself and just maybe some of those other elements. So maybe just start with uh, Ian, just initial thoughts on the movie. Oh, I struggled with this one. Uh, as far as not like reaching a judgment, but just struggled to get through it um, because it all felt very samey. That was my big issue with it. It was like I said, it's like, here's the one joke and we're going to do it again and again and again. 
Um, I felt it was the sort of pedestrian live action 1970s schlock that I've seen a thousand <laughs> times over. I mean, Cam, you, you're Canadian, so you're, I'm sure, I don't know how close we are in age. Uh, CBC, uh, sort of the Canadian version of the BBC, used to do the wonderful world of Disney on Sunday yeah. nights. And they would almost always have some live action crappy film from the 1970s out of a Disney catalog. And they would throw it up there. And it just felt like like that sort of a thing where it was just a kind of tired premise with some children who are supposed to come across as um, quirky and funny, but just ended up getting on my nerves. And um, we just hit the one or two jokes that are maybe landing and we just drill it into the ground over and over again until some sort of glorified gotcha punchline at the end. And that was your movie. And I just sort of felt like I've I waited a long time for what was probably about 40 minutes worth of content. Yeah. OK. Um, Ethan, what do you think? I got about 45 minutes into this and I paused it for a second and I saw I was 45 minutes and went. No. This is a long 90 minutes. <laughs> yep. I did yep. the exact same thing at the exact same point in the movie. <laughs> yep. And I went, because I was like, this film's about a dinosaur, right? When, when does it go missing? And I got to like the midway point, the dinosaur's still not gone, not gone missing yet. I'm, I'm really concerned. And the next 45 minutes went so slow. Oh. There is a channel called Dave in the UK. And every Christmas they do like these murder mystery parodies with Johnny Vegas. And it felt like that at points. Where I'm like, there's going to be like four ad breaks and maybe I'll understand why. But it just keeps going on and on and on. And it was just that thing. I got tired at a point. I went, this doesn't feel cohesive. This feels kind of muddled and like jumbly i think i sent a message to ian being like is, is your copy the same as mine because mine feels like i'm in a fever dream because it's just weirdly choppy i just refuse to engage you after like i already saw this once i gotta talk about it later <laughs> don't make me no scott you watched these movies twice did you watch this one twice yes sir oh wow oh. that is the greatest of commitments i can ever imagine to a podcast <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I tell you what, I tell you what. I actually liked bits of this film. I found it, I, I, the first time around I watched it, I was like, I was hoping for something to grab me. I, it didn't really grab me. I was trying to figure out what it's supposed to be. Is it a kid's film? Is it a comedy? Is it a racist agenda? I don't know. And then the second time around, I just stopped trying and maybe it just had beaten me by this point. It had just taken away all of my will. And it just became like a kid's campy romp film where I, I had no stakes in the game and I just didn't sort of enjoyed the bits that I could enjoy. Like the nannies fighting the ninjas. That's just funny. Sure. And that was it. I, I didn't dig any deeper into it. And I just, I kind of enjoyed it from that angle. Like as, as a nothing film to put on in front of kids, although you wouldn't do it now. Um, if you edit all the bad stuff out, maybe if that kind of bit, that bit works. It'd be a six minute film. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> it would be a short film. <laughs> it would be a recipe for soup. <laughs> Just that scene at the end. Yeah. Um, in that sense, I kind of liked it. Um, but if I tried to get anything out of the film, no, it, it failed for me. I'd say. Yeah. For me, this was, 
so many of these live action Disney films of this era, it's like they had one thing. You know, like I watched the Gnomemobile fairly recently. I love the Gnomemobile. <laughs> sure, yeah. Like we had way more fun with that one, I'll say. Like the Gnomemobile oh. was crazy. <laughs> I haven't seen it in, in like 30 years. I'll acknowledge that. But when I was a kid, I loved the Gnomemobile. I, it's not on Disney Plus, so I'm assuming something <laughs> terrible must be in it. Uh, it gets pretty sexist at the end, but um, okay. <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, but uh, overall, like the most of the movie, it, you know, going back to what we were saying earlier, like it doesn't overwhelm the movie the way that maybe this movie is overwhelmed by its problematic stuff. Uh, but the Gnomemobile, it's kind of like Disney was like, what if there was gnomes and they like rode in a car, <laughs> you know, like that's sometimes feels like where the beginning and end of their thinking comes and goes that's a franchise that felt like they had the two kids from mary poppins on for like two more films in their contract and said give us something we got an idea for gnomes run with it the kids are with the gnomes yes and they're even credited in the opening credits as the mary poppins kids are they really <laughs> they are yes <laughs> well, that's <just> but, <laughs> so like this movie felt like what if there was like a dinosaur skeleton on a truck <laughs> Yeah. And what could we get out of that? And that was largely what the movie was, was this very, oh boy, lackadaisical car chase with a brontosaurus skeleton on the back of a truck driving, you know, around maybe one and a half blocks uh. built in Pinewood. <laughs> like, I, I found this thing pretty punishing to watch. I, I just found the, um, all the Peter Ustinov stuff was like, okay, putting aside all of the glaring racism of all of it, it just had no tension. It was just watching an actor. And I really love Peter Ustinov and a lot of his other stuff. His work as uh, Prince John in Robin Hood is legendary. Yeah. But it felt like everything I love about Peter Ustinov was completely like clamped down because of the makeup and putting on this ridiculous accent. Basically, everything I enjoy out of that actor felt suppressed. So I'm like, okay, this isn't working as a villain. There's no tension with, you know, this this team of Chinese spies chasing these nannies. So it just felt very slow paced to me. And it was like, OK, we're just like basically tuning in for whimsy. We get some of the very patented Disney whimsy, but I didn't feel like it. It was so not memorable. And I was just kind of watching, you know, Helen Hayes, you know, I said two time Oscar winner, just kind of coasting through this thing. It feels like everyone's just kind of coasting here. I've been watching a lot of Family Guy recently, and this feels like one very extended Family Guy joke. It's like, hey, remember that time that I stole a brontosaurus from the Chinese government? It just keeps going on forever and ever and ever, and I'm waiting for the punchline, and it never comes. It's just it's just a cutaway. To, we'll get there, I'm sure. But yeah. Another cutaway of someone else looking surprised at a dinosaur going through London, and we'll reset the joke in a minute. I, I can see the uh, the Disney writers room right now that they're, they're pitching it, and the writer says to the the Disney exec, he goes, "So I've got an idea for a film. We've got a dinosaur on a truck." The, the Disney guy goes, "Yes, here's money." And he's like, "No, do you, do you want to hear the plot? No, 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 just film it, just film it, just go, just go." And that's it. They, they didn't write anything. There was like some gags in there that you kind of snicker, like the old um, like hunter guy. I'm like, okay, that's a sort of like <laughs> stupidity that I can laugh at in a Disney movie, where I just go like. Boy, it's it's not funny for the reasons I feel like were intended by the movie. It's just like so campy and stupid. But a moment like that I could have enjoyed. But like, you know, we've talked about there's a lot of Chinese stereotypes. There's a lot of stereotypes, period, because you have like these Scottish guys coming out and thinking it's the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah. Um, that was weird. It was weird. There's a lot of weird moments like that. They're like, Nessie's in London. We failed as a Scotland. And it 
sure i was wondering too a lot of that chase is done through the fog and i was like is that fog there just to disguise the fact they're going down the same street over and over again oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) it has to be it has to be yeah i i'm i mean when we're talking about the film i kind of like to do like the bits we enjoy towards the beginning before we get more nitpicky so a bit i enjoyed was the scenes in the natural history museum okay I have a massive love for the Natural History Museum. And Cam, uh, when you come to London as part of your spy tour that I'm arranging, <laughs> I'm going to have to take you there because it's actually around the corner, more or less, from the Royal Albert Hall. Oh, okay. Can I get into a baby carriage and like p- propel myself around with one arm? <laughs> Absolutely. I'll steal it off of a lady and I'll just throw you in and then uh, you can climb up on a dinosaur. Awesome. Yeah. Um. Uh, so I, I enjoyed the Natural History Museum. I've spent many, many, many days in that museum. I, I do love that place. So it was nice to see that in a film. Uh, that's one of my positives, I'd say. Um, okay, like for me, I enjoyed the uh, shot of the train traveling at the start of the movie. <laughs> this is getting really minute. <laughs> so I, like the, shot... I like the font. I like the font of the credits. <sighs> like Okay, so like Lord Southmere is traveling from China back to Britain. And we get this this shot of this train going, you know, over the landscapes, and it's done with a combo of matte paintings and models. It just has that sort of beautiful old Disney kind of whimsy to it that I enjoy. Like shots like that are what keep me going through some of these tougher to sit through movies. Ian, have you got anything? Yeah, I liked I liked Lord Lord Southmere throughout. I I did as a bit of a bumbling um set up and he actually he i'll give it this he actually had me fooled the whole time as to what his uh reason was for 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 being in china uh i found him and and it's weird i do i have gone on about the joke that happens over and over and over again and it it just does it till it's dead i actually didn't mind the joke where he keeps getting hit in the head Mm. and therefore prolongs his amnesia throughout uh, to the point where you, you might think it's a ruse, but actually it does legitimately explain his own confusion as to, as to what the point of everything is. Um, I thought he was endearing. I thought he was charming. I thought he was a small personality against very big personalities around him. And that sort of more controlled, um, more maybe stiff upper lip kind of British pr- presentation uh, actually gave him a unique space in this film. And so I liked that. I, I liked there was a bit of, there, there was a straight man amongst the the wild and crazy landscape of the film. That's actually a really good call. I didn't see that twist coming. And you're right. Like the way that they navigate that with uh, with Lord Southmere, I actually thought was fairly effective. I, I did have a question about Lord Southmere seeing as we're here. I was going to bring it up at the end, but I'll I'll throw it out. Was he actually a spy? No. Well, I don't think so. I don't. I think know. ultimately no. But he did steal the plans. A recipe. Well, he's a corporate spy, maybe. He's a corporate spy for a soup company. There is an episode of Sweet Life on Deck with Zach oh. and Cody, which is this exact plot, which is they think there's a secret spy, but it's actually the secret plans he's trying to assassinate someone to get his mayonnaise for a sandwich. And it's the exact same thing it's disney stealing from disney then isn't it yep um 
I mean, the only thing I run into problems with is the umbrella. Yeah. And if he's actually, if the umbrella really is a secret, because we all take it to be, it's a super spy umbrella that shoots bullets. Well, what if it's just the idea that he just sticks someone in the back with an umbrella, takes off the top so he feels the the hollowed out uh, tip, and therefore is just trying to replicate what a pistol would, would, would feel like. But I think we have, because of our familiarity with, with James Bond and the like, are all going, oh, spy umbrella, it's a gun. Um, I think that's the thing. That's the biggest red herring that that throws me onto the scent they want me to to, to sort of go on to, which is that he is a spy. But I don't think he is. Well, maybe just pitching it. Maybe he knows it's not a real gun, and he's just making the guy think it is, as a spy would use the things that are around him, like the Jason Bourne style of sticking the pencil in the guy's hand. Whew. Oh, you're flipping it now. You're flipping yeah. it. Okay, triple bluff. I. I I think we have to take that final reveal as fact, though, when he says he works for like the soup and savory department or whatever of a company. I, I kind of can just go along with that, that that is kind of the gag of the whole movie is that he never was actually a spy. I, I don't know that this movie is like playing with ambiguities. <laughs> <laughs> it's the subtext of this film that I really, really like. Everything's nuanced. <laughs> so rich, so complex, a tapestry of human emotion. <laughs> Uh, mainly misery. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, Ethan, anything you enjoyed? I liked how much this film aged me. Um, <laughs> no, I re- You were like him. You were like Southmere at the start of the movie, sitting in a chair, like... <laughs> I feel like it now. I, I like the stuff with the snake. I like oh, snakes. Really? And I just thought it was weird that this... I, I was just like, this film is a snake for some reason. Sure. <laughs> That's that's quirky enough for me, I guess. We're all familiar with with with, with the concept of Chekhov's gun, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's felt like Chekhov's gun the entire time. Where I'm like, okay, you keep showing me the snake. Something important's gonna happen with the snake, right? Okay, there's the snake again. Nah. Something important's gonna happen with the snake. I mean, we reviewed Home Alone not that long ago, and it's like we saw the spider enough to go. The spider's gonna come up in an important moment. Did we get a payoff with the snake? I forget. Kind of. It was the. Uh, it went up someone's pant leg, right? Uh. And it knocked out Southmere at one point. Everything knocked out Southmere at some point. There was another snake as well at some point, which they just used as like some weird skipping rope to try and attack someone. I don't know if they were trying to imply it was the same snake or not, but there was enough snakes in this film for me to maybe not be as angry. Okay. Yeah. Th- uh, it fit my snake quota. Henrietta the snake was very um, charismatic as far as on-screen snakes go, I thought. Um, one thing I actually kind of enjoyed about this movie, and this goes actually for a lot of live-action movies, is kind of connecting the dots to classic Disney properties or just tropes they go back to. I thought the three nannies kind of reminded me of the three fairies in Sleeping Beauty. Um, there was just like some cases like that. I, you know, the fact that they hid inside the whale reminded me of Pinocchio. I always find that kind of fun how Disney recycles its tropes. I really like the di- dynamic between the, the, the three nannies, all things considered. Uh, the middle one, the middle one who is a, I don't know how to describe her. The one who's not as old, but isn't young. Uh, Joan Sims character. Yeah, middle-aged. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, I thought she had a a, a likable characteristic about her. I thought the young one was kind of naive and just wanted to be involved and was told, no, you're too young. You have to sit over there until you're ready to do it. I liked the little sort of bickering they had between them, more so between the ones who weren't Hetty. Uh, Hetty was too, you know, caught up with the plot. If you, I'm using finger quotes. I know you can't see me. Uh, in order to sort of make that happen, but um, no, I thought it was it was a likable sort of um i mean if you're gonna spend 25 minutes watching them in the front cab of a truck 
I suppose you probably should have some chemistry going on there. I did enjoy that whole scene where they are trying to, like, take apart the dinosaur. It's just a load of the old woman jumping up and down, trying to be quiet, and then not being quiet at all. I thought that was cute and enjoyable, and then the, the rest of the film did not have that same kind of tone or heart for me. The nannies, or the grannies, reminded me of a Monty Python's Flying Circus uh, hmm. gag, uh, which is another throwback that uh, Cam has, won't get, but hey-ho, I'll do it anyway. There was a whole skit about this uh, a group of killer nannies that were going around London and bullying people and bullying young men. <laughs> um, yeah, done by some much funnier people in the Monty Python troupe. But yeah, it, it did give me throwbacks to that which was done in the 60s. Uh, but yeah, I really liked the nannies. I, I thought that was just a nice concept to have them as the leads in this film. You would have expected Lord Southmere to be your lead yeah. in the first five minutes. Yeah, I kind of like that too. It was this secret society of nannies, you know, and obviously Robert Stevenson had great luck with um, Mary Poppins back in the day. Uh, so it's kind of fun to see him revisit that concept here. And I, I like the idea of kind of these elderly gals all getting together and, you know, um, trying to find a microfilm on a dinosaur skeleton in the middle of the night. Like things like that are fun or the three of them, as you know, we've said, uh, you know, taking part in a very slow paced chase. Um, it, it has that sort of like um, hijinksy quality that, you know, Disney movies often have, but the nanny idea is fun. Although I am curious, you know, they talk a lot in this movie about the power of the nanny. Now, I can't relate, having never had a nanny in my life. Um, I don't know. Can any of the uh, UK um, hosts on this show or guests talk to the power of the British nanny? Well, I had a nanny, but oh, we wow. call okay. we call well, we'll, no, well, no. To preface, we call our grannies nannies. Oh, okay. So um, yeah, sorry to spoil that. Uh, but no, I mean, I had. I never had a nanny. It's something that the rich people would have uh, here, I would say. Ethan, would you resonate that? I, I'd say so. I didn't really know anyone who had a nanny per se. I knew one person who did, and that was like, not even like in this film, just a young childminder, really. Like, it was never done in the same kind of vein, like from what I'd seen in person. All the film issues have got it kind of wrong. And did that kid join you in a game of Ring Around the Rosies? No. Uh, was... they, they they went off and uh, had to move because their nanny stole a dinosaur. Ah. <laughs> that classic trope. <laughs> those kids that those nannies had to put up with were really unbearable. Like, Disney movies of this era, you know, the child performances are real hit or miss. You'll watch some where the kids are just unbearable. But, like, these two, these two young boys were really awful in this movie. That kid with the snake sucked. He did. This is the younger one, right? Yeah. Yeah, he was yeah. not. I didn't mind the older one. He was okay. The younger one, I'm like, whose family member are you? <laughs> I think he just wandered on and they were like, oh, we can't afford to lose any more film. Just keep going. Yeah. Keep going. Costume fits. <laughs> it's kind of hard to try and think of other good things at this point. I'm, I'm kind of struggling here. I, I enjoy playing the game of, oh my God, it's that guy. Yeah. And uh, the Colonel, the Colonel, uh, I don't know if anybody else noticed this, but the Colonel was the third doctor, John Pertwee. Oh, oh. my God. From Doctor Who, which is why I made my Sonic Screwdriver reference uh, off the top of the show there. So he dropped on. I went, I know that face. Who is that? And then it suddenly hit me that it's classic Doctor Who doctor, John Pertwee. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I, I, I count myself as a Whovian. Mm. Where was this colonel? He's the one who ends up on the back of it. He's he's outside. He Wait, the hunter? Yeah, it's him. What? No. Yeah. That's John Pertwee? Look, look at your cast list on Wikipedia. I'm staring it in the face. Oh, my, I'm gonna, oh my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. There he is. Ka-chow, ka-chow. It is. 
This is this is why we bring you in. This is, this is yeah, the money right here. The money. There we go. So yeah, it was just one of those things where I had to, you know, I, I, I was I was searching long and hard for some positives, and I went, hey, this John Pertwee is a as as the colonel to sort of. Uh, I mean, it's. I don't think I was sitting here going, I, I hate this film. It was just I was just really struggling for anything that got me intellectually stimulated by it. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that's fair. Yeah. I did have a question if we, before we leave the discussion about the nannies. That protracted driving sequence, I had a question, but I would say it went on far too long. Oh, yeah. It, it, like, it overstayed its welcome by about 15 minutes. Yeah. Uh, having done a little bit of research into it, um, Roger Ebert in his review mentions that he was just really hoping one of the dinosaurs would go missing as, <laughs> as it went. <laughs> As it went around and around and around foggy London, he's like, when do we, much like uh, I think Ethan was saying, when do we get the part where this dinosaur actually goes missing? Right now we're just watching one of these dinosaurs is driving. And <laughs> <laughs> we need to actually get to, to, to the point where, where it's missing. So, uh, yeah, that was it. Uh, I, 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 we made some light of it. I think they had an idea for the driving around London cityscape, and they, they went with all the ideas they had. Throw them in the box. There's no thing as a bad idea. Just throw them in there. We'll shoot them all. And then they didn't really know, you know, what do we do once we're out of London? And they kind of went, oh, don't, don't, don't really know what to do with that. Um, I know there's, there's, there's two dinosaurs. So er, 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 <laughs> ergo that situation. Well, I, the question I had about the driving sequence, and I mean, Cam, I think you're the oldest person here and you were around at the time of the Thanks. dinosaurs. Thanks, Scott. So, Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Um, you might not be. I just want to call you old. It might be me for all intents and purposes. <laughs> okay, we'll have an old off with the question. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the vehicles they're driving are powered by coal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was like, what? <laughs> Did we have vehicles that were powered by coal? Because I think we sussed out the internal combustion engine before World War One. They put a train on the road and didn't question it. Uh, you know what? Honestly, like I didn't really even think about that, but you're right. This is insane. Well, hang on. It's, it's coal on the way out, but then it's wood on the way back. Yeah. Um, I love this film I don't... so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, Scott, you drive a vehicle like that now, right? Of course. I'm always shoveling coal. No comment. Um, uh, I, I, I have no idea. I, I was going to look up like internal combustion engine when it was invented. I could Google it. Maybe there were steam powered uh, cars, but I've there never ever. It must have been, but I've never heard of it because surely the weight of the car would be impacted by the weight of the coal you'd have to carry to propel the car. And therefore, you'd need to burn more coal to propel the car. Can you imagine like the driver's tests in those days? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you'd need two, two drivers, surely. You'd need someone to, to put the coal in and then someone to steer. Yeah. I I have we no are We are all stumped this. by this, I think. Yeah. Um, I think it's fascinating, though, that I sat through that entire sequence without really even thinking about the fact they were shoveling coal into that car. I was like, okay, yeah. did that? There were so many other weird things going on. That did not jump <laughs> out to me. <laughs> was it the fact that you were watching the film was the thing that was weird? Possibly, possibly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, I did have a question actually for people from uh, the UK. What is a paper chase? Okay, I'm glad you asked this question because I had to Google it. 
it's not something they did it in my like comprehensive school. I went to like a a, a pretty bad high school and a pretty bad primary school, uh, which for North Americans that's like a mix of elementary and middle school. And uh, anyway, our schools are different. A paper chase is something where they would cut up bits of paper uh, before the chase and sprinkle it along a route, and the kids would have to run and chase the paper to get to the end of the race as like a route marker. It's like a breadcrumb race, if you will, but with paper instead. What? Hmm. See, I thought it was just some weird old-timey way of saying paper trail, and that was their whole thing. They're like, oh, they might find us because of all of our coal or something. That's just weird. That's just throw confetti, see where they go. That was like real low-tier parent thing to get them off your case for a bit. I mean, this was set like in 1930-something. 17 or something, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, I suppose post one. So it could have been up to well, anywhere between. Yeah. Um, Somewhere in there, yeah. But it, it was definitely, uh, in my research, I found out it was something that was generally done by private schools, even in that time. So it was definitely the rich kids thing. If they weren't running around the Maypole, they were paper chasing. Well, now I'm just fascinated whether people in 1975 seeing this movie even knew what a paper chase was. Well, I mean, there's a there's a somewhat well-known high street shot called Paper Chase in the UK, uh, which I think takes its name from this. My only guess is that that's what happens. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I scratched my head. And if Cam, you scratched your head too. And Ian and Ethan are both scratching their heads. I, I think it's a very old thing. Yeah, I think so. And it's established, I am old, so I should know what a paper chase is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you knew the Brontosaurus when it still had, you know, muscles and skin. That's right, yeah. I recall them well. We had one, yeah. a pet named Dino. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I do have a, a... The second dinosaur, we did mention that as well, that is a somewhat famous dinosaur. How so? Well, that dinosaur, the actual one, is called... Well, it's a, a Diplodocus, I believe? Diplodocus, that, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I'm not a dinosaur guy. I, I had um, Peter Ustinov pronouncing the name of that dinosaur in a, um <laughs> approximation of a Chinese <laughs> accent, so it was very difficult to understand what that dinosaur was actually called. <laughs> uh, I, well, I think I'm right, and Ian says I'm right, so I trust Ian. There we go. Um, and so that is what basically that dinosaur has been sat in the open hall of the, the Natural History Museum since 1905. Hmm. So oh, I know exactly that. which one that is. Yeah, you would have seen it. Its uh, nickname is Dippy. Wow. Uh, yeah. it, it currently is not on tour anymore, but it was on tour before the coronavirus. It was taking a brief hiatus. There was a stegosaurus there, but uh, when lockdown ends, Dippy will be back in the Natural History Museum. So you're saying I could go to the Natural History Museum and see a movie star? Well, you'll yeah. see me and Cam there as well, to be fair. So. <laughs> I'll be in the carriage. But where are the butterflies? <laughs> mm, good call. Mm. Well, there is actually a butterfly uh, uh, area in the Natural History Museum now. So they, they were foreshadowing. Oh, there we go. Mm. You can see I like Natural History Museum, guys. It is cool. Um Okay, well, I, usually we'll like go through the characters and, and their performances. I mean, do you want to quick fire that, Cam? Or do you think we should just go to like the bad bits? Um, we can um, maybe just quick fire through it, maybe. Or actually, you know what? Yeah, let's just go to the bad bits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think any performances like stand out, so I don't really want to like, tip my hat to anyone. Yeah. Uh, apart the from snake. for bad reasons. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, Henrietta the Snake, of course. 
Um, okay. I'm not going to go first. I'm going to throw it to the guests first. Ian, apart from some of the obvious things, what were some things you disliked about this film? Uh, that the abominable snowman um, respected political boundaries. Mm. <laughs> he carries Lord Southmere to the edge of China, dumps him on the ground. I think says some lines of, you are no longer in China, and just takes off. And I'm like, I did not know that the abominable snowman was an official agent of a Chinese government. I kind of love the abominable snowman. I should have brought him up in the things I liked versus the model shot of a train. Yeah, um, it, it used to be something I was thinking of too. <laughs> yeah, like that's the sort of craziness that I actually kind of enjoy. Like that's the sort of thing off the top, you sit up Ustinov and whatever, where I go, oh boy, oh boy. But, you know, I see that shot of the abominable snowman. I go, that's the kind of thing I like in some of these 70s Disney movies where it felt like everyone was on drugs. Um, <laughs> plus, you know, <laughs> you got the uh, the abominable snowman on the Matterhorn in the Disneyland rides. Like, I, I love that. So that was kind of cool. I wish I'd seen more of them. So, you know what? Getting back to things I didn't like, I didn't like that the abominable snowman didn't feature as a prominent co-star throughout this movie. He could have been the spokesman for the wonton soup at the end. Oh, I wish. Mm, yeah. That's what he could have had. He could have been on the on the label. Oh, my God. Yeah, and you have like him and Peter Ustinov like high five at the end. Sure. <laughs> He could even say the line as like, there's nothing abominable about this soup. Oh, Scott, stop writing my sequel. (laughs) (laughs) That's the sequel. He just wants his copyright. He just wants his paycheck for it. That's all it is. And it's a courtroom drama. I could see it. I had a question for you guys. Did any of you hear, because so much of this movie is driven by this mysterious Lotus X. I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. Did anyone else hear it as Lotus Eggs? No. Ye- I heard it as Lotus Sex for a bit. Okay. <laughs> More interesting movie. Well, especially because the Lotus Car Company is uh, is not too far from where we're at here in Norfolk. So there we go. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I wrote down, because I do two sets of notes. I do the initial watch, which is like a thought stream, a continuum of my thoughts throughout the film. And then the second one is kind of like my likes and dislikes in the second viewing. All of my first viewing has Lotus Eggs. Yeah. E-G-G-S. And then I did some reading about the film afterwards, and it was Lotus X, X-Ray, you know, X, X-Men. And I was like, that's not what they're saying. But apparently it was. Uh, yeah, it's like my ears maybe corrected themselves about halfway through, and I went, wait, I think they just said X. Um, so I, I, you know, had to fix that. But I had a- another question for you guys, because... <sighs> This movie I struggled with asking myself, like, who is the like the star of this movie? Like, who is the lead character? And why does no one have any personality traits? Like, I guess you could argue Helen Hayes is the protagonist of the movie. But, like, what is there to her character? It feels like they begin and end with, like, nanny description. And it's like, okay. Like, I, I really struggled with that throughout this movie because I can watch some pretty crappy Disney movies. But if you give me a memorable character, like Scott, you and I talked about Condor Man, which was a pretty fun experience. Those are very specific characters in Condor Man. Um, these, this group, they were all just kind of archetypes, but none of them had any real personality. No, I think it's more of the joke and they, they do draw attention to it. But I think that's the concept. They go, well, no one knows what a nanny gets up to on her day off. And they went, like, think of the most unrealistic, ridiculous, over-the-top thing that could be. And then that becomes the imagination for what nannies do on on their day off. They're running around with dinosaurs through downtown London and thwarting the Chinese government spies. Um, And 
much like I can't believe I'm doing this as well in Little Britain. <laughs> My big issue with Little Britain as a series, if you've ever seen it, is that they mistake a recurring joke for a character. And so um, a character's got a punchline or a catchphrase, and that's not a character, but it's all they have to define them as. So in, in, in essence, that becomes their de facto characteristic is the fact that they say this thing. There's like we, four jokes in Little Britain you could yeah. be talking about, and that's the worst um, part. Yeah, there's mm -hmm. the one, whether it's he doesn't like it, computer says no, I'm the only gay in the village, all these things. They're not characters, but it's all you get to base this character off of. So the nanny, it just becomes posh little nanny doing the most absurd thing. There's your character. That's a character. And I said, well, no, that's not a character. No, it's a character. And unfortunately, that's what drives us through. This, this, this whole thing, unfortunately, he's not the protagonist. He's the antagonist, kind of. Uh, this whole thing's a P Peter Ustinov vehicle. And uh, because we are supposed to shift and we are supposed to change our alignment and be rooting for him by the end. Once his number two ends up trying to usurp him, we start going, oh, don't, don't, don't usurp Ustinov. I like Ustinov. Now, not that I do, but the film's telling me I should be feeling that way. Mm -hmm. um, so much so at the end, when when he comes together with Lord Southmere and, and Bananis, we, you know, we're supposed to go, oh, look at that. Oh, he's the spokesman for the wonton suit. That's great. And it's not. <laughs> and I, I guess the only thing working in that sort of, um, uh, the, that style of what the movie's trying to do is that Quan is a character I hated even more than uh, Peter Ustinov's character Juan. Yeah. Like I thought Quan was unbearable to sit through any scene of him just doing like hijinks, following nannies around, falling in water. And then just all of the stuff of him bickering with Peter Ustinov. I was like, I can't stand this character of Quan. I, I, to answer your original question, who I think the lead character was, I, I think it has to be Helen Hayes. Yeah. But what I find bizarre about it is, and I like the premise, like what does Nanny do on her day off? No one knows. But it, apparently, she runs the IMF. She is Peter mm. Graves from the Mission Impossible TV series. She even has a little book of people she calls up for certain missions. She is the spy of the film. Yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. Huh. Well, because you would also say that, like, all the Chinese agents in this film are just, like, incompetent. Like, they're never portrayed as good spies. She's the only one that seems semi-competent. Yeah, and she's able to go undercover as, the, as just the nanny. This is the same plot as Home Alone 3. Uh, to be fair, they do steal the wrong dinosaur, though. <laughs> a less successful IMF. Yeah, it's just like, look, look to the left 20 yards, and there's your answer. Well, there's, a third there's a third dinosaur. There's a triceratops. I'm, I'm tired of this movie just downgrading the importance of the triceratops. The triceratops is a legit <laughs> dinosaur. Too long I have sat by and watched the Triceratops diminish to second-rate status. That ends today. Today I make a stand. Triceratops is a dinosaur. They had three dinosaurs in that museum, not two. At least it wasn't a T-Rex, which seems to get all the love. <laughs> yeah. They could have been about 20 years ahead on the marketing for that one. True. Um, anyone else got anything they'd like to, to moan about and air their grievances about this film? This film is really choppy. I'm I, whenever we do like best film ever or talking to Mickey, I always talk about editing and pacing. And this film has so many segments where it's like, we'll just sort of splice it together and hope for the best. Like you said before, with the with the scenes in the park and the guy falling into the water, it just keeps happening and happening and happening. But there is a point where it just randomly happens with no build up at all, and he's just walking, and all of a sudden, next cut he's in the water and he's falling and it's so consistent and I, that's why i said before the whole fever dream thing it's so 
it's so choppy and it adds on to my my dislike of this because everything bad is happening in this like it's just poorly put together it's not it's not cohesive at all for like a a structured timeline but it's also supposed to be like a high-spirited chase film at a certain point mm. as well and it's not edited like one at all it just it, as i said it's you know lackadaisical is the best word it's way too relaxed for what it wants to be whether it is a chase film or just like a very like broad high-spirited comedy um it fails at both i i don't have to come back from that yeah it's bumpy it's like it's just slow and bumpy throughout the entire thing and every so often it peaks for a second with like the pacing and then it just goes back down to just not knowing where it's landing Something I felt this film could have used more of is I felt when you actually got um, Lord Southmere and uh, Ustinov in the same space at the same time, I actually found them to have a fairly decent chemistry between the two of them. The problem is they don't go there enough. Um, and so, I mean, when, when they're having the big ninja versus nanny fight, words I never thought I'd say. <laughs> um, and uh, Southamir is about ready to, like, get up for a moment to help his nanny out. And Ustinov goes, no, 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 no. You get up, I get up. Right now we sit and they're sitting there sort of cheering from a distance to their respective teams. Like, you know, two, two dad coaches at a, at a you know, underage uh, football match, just trying not to get too involved. Um, I felt they had a nice rapport between the two of them. And as a result, it seems strange that for everything this movie did seem to have time for, it didn't have time for any more of them. And I thought that they actually had a fun dynamic, even so so that when the reveals made at the end, I actually did feel it was a bit of a lighthearted, hey, gotcha. And, you know, and him going, I told you, I'm not a spy. There was, there was a lightness to those exchanges. And um, by keeping them apart for so long, I don't think it made the ultimate payoff any better. In fact, I think it suffers for it. Well, the one thing you can say, too, is that, like, they didn't make the character, you know, of one irredeemable. Like, a lot of movies will present a villain, make this villain, like, really awful for, like, two films. And then in the third film, it's like, no, no, now he's a good guy. <laughs> um, I felt like this movie actually worked with the twist that he was actually, you know, a friend of theirs at the end or an ally. I mean, it they never took that character into too dark a direction um, in terms of being violent or merciless. But uh, Scott, do you have a thought on that? I mean, just the, the ninjas versus nannies uh, penultimate mm. scene of the film, it, it gave me definite vibes of the episode of the original series of Star Trek, The Trouble with Tribbles. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Cyrano Jones sort of taking his drinks around the Klingons and the officers fighting and things like that. It, it did kind of remind me of that in a campy, fun kind of way. Um, I think by the point I got to that scene in the film, I'd lost all of my brain cells. So <laughs> I was I was enjoying it. So the question I'll put to you guys is, uh, would you rather be on Team Nanny or Team Ninja? Hmm. I feel if I go on Team Nanny, I'm not going to run the risk of being cancelled on Twitter at a point for appropriation. Uh, so I'm going to go for that one for call. the safe bet. Yeah, you know what? I'm gonna. And plus, I mean, just going off of this movie, it seems like the nannies are more badass than the ninja spies. So I guess I got to go with the winning team. I'll go nanny. Yeah, the nannies have uh, competent leadership. So I will also make it three for Team Nanny. Hold the Fran Drescher. I hadn't, uh, I hadn't thought about the whole uh, cancel culture thing there, so I have to, of course, go nanny as well. Yeah, um, I, I want to make a note too that um, the restaurant that the Chinese spy agency works out of is called the Reluctant Dragon, which is a uh, that's nod cute. To a, That's nice. Yeah, it's a 1941 
um, live action Disney film where a comedian goes and takes a tour of Disney Studios and we get to see an animated segment called The Reluctant Dragon in that film. So um, maybe a little bit of a um, <laughs> very um, uh, somewhat forgotten Disney film from the era, but uh, you know, you got a little tribute to it here. Before we get to the knock list, uh, I'm just going to throw it out to everyone for any final thoughts or anything about that about the film. Uh, Ethan, any final thoughts? I think in 2021, there is a chance you could remake this and make it just a campy, fun Disney Channel type movie on Disney Plus that no one will be offended by. This could have been really entertaining, but it's just so poorly slapped together that I think that's the word there's a there's a lot bad to this but the the it feels solo effort points as well that i think that's almost one of the worst qualities of it too like there is nothing redeeming here to even be like kind of cute nah who would the villains be um i'm sure i'm sure you can have the butterfly guy honestly well look, okay but i i mean as a corporate group so maybe i'm, I'm gonna turn the question back on our on our glorious hosts here mm. guys who deal with spy movies on a, on a regular basis and spy movies by their very nature are devised around the or devised around the concept of us and the other and in you know the the you definitely couldn't go bankrupt by portraying the, the russians as the bad guys and then for a long time it was people from the middle east or people from central europe or da 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 da, -da. occasionally the americans the brits themselves but how do you do a spy movie in a time when any representation of another nationality or group is deemed as being uh offensive how do you do spy movies anymore Oh, I can answer this one. I think what you have to do is go the, you know, Mission Impossible route of it being like a syndicate. It's a rogue syndicate of made up of members from all over the world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they are the ones putting together this mission to uh, hide microfilm on a dinosaur and what have you. I mean, I, I could also answer, you just turn the tables on the film. Why does it, I mean, you could just have, first of all, you would, you would cast, a, you know, culturally appropriate actors from, you know, oh, absolutely. The, yeah, that's a given, of course. But, you know, why is it not, you know, one country is stealing a dinosaur from, from the UK or stealing our recipe for something, and we're the bad guys trying to get it back? There's no, you know, we can be the bad guys in a Hollywood film. We can, but... People won't like it is the thing. I still think you should. Box offices have, have suggested that... Uh you know that doesn't tend to to work uh that's why the americans are the bad guys so rarely and why i think maybe the brits constantly are uh it's a very british thing to look at it and go yeah we can be the bad guys i don't i don't think necessarily uh Amer how about canadians canadians as the villains in this hey it's our recipe mm. for, maple, for maple syrup eh? yeah yeah um i think they just give it away timmy ho yeah, we'd be like, no, no, you can have the dinosaur. We're okay. Oh, we're sorry about about all that. Yeah, have the maple syrup. <laughs> have have the dinosaur. Eh? I just wonder though, like, how much of the uh, issues just with all of this is traced back to the source material? And I, I, the book is, I should mention, is out of print. I feel like a lot <laughs> of this was probably already in that book. So I, I don't know that this is a property that needs to be dug up, excavated. Oh, dug up, nice. Film. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I could just see the headline now if you tried to remake it. It would just be the headline that says, like, one of our dinosaurs is racist. I'd be like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I could see it. I could see it. Um, Ian, what about you? Any final thoughts? Oh, on this? Um... Or Casino Royale. 
<laughs> no, no, no. Um, it was, I don't know as much about Ustinov. I mean, I know him as, as Prince John and Robin Hood. I love Robin Hood. It's probably my favorite. Currently, it's, it's my number one spot. Uh, we have a running ranking system of our favorite Disney animated classics. And currently, it sits in my number one spot. Mine too. Love Ustinov from that. We saw him in um, Blackbeard's Ghost, which he was very good in that. So um, it was, it, I, from looking at this, I, I understand his marketability and his drawing power and why they wanted him for a film like this. Um, not the execution or the, or the idea of itself, but the idea of an Ustinov-led project is apparently money. So just get him to do anything. And this is what you get from, from this. So I guess in this respect, I appreciated seeing the fact that he did other things besides the two films I know him from. I just wish it had been anything but this. Um, I... It was a film that was full of, besides the, the, the shocking and ridiculously insensitive cultural representation, it was just a, full, a film full of meh. Yeah. So that's me, yeah. Cam? Yeah, I mean, I, as I've said, you know, I've become very uh, familiar as of late with just rewatching a lot of these 70s Disney live action movies and 60s ones. You know, there's a lot of junk out there. You know, you watch something like the Shaggy DA, it's kind of a drag too. It's very poorly edited. This one, to me, though, it just runs that extra step of just being really offensive to watch. So it's kind of like, why? Why would I recommend anyone watch this? It's uh, it's a foregone product of its time, and I found it just kind of grating to sit through. Hard to argue with that. The only thing I would bring up is it's such a bizarre film that at one point there is a love scene between a dinosaur skeleton and a giraffe Oh yeah, that was weird. Yeah, I, yeah. I was waiting for Marvin Gaye's "Let's Get It On" to start playing. Because they have the that... worst shot too. Because like the giraffe's licking licking its lips and everything too, is just like making eye contact. Yeah. Oh god. I I that bit I was scratching my head, but I think my brain might have melted by that point. And that was like minute fifty of the car chase. <laughs> <laughs> by that point, I don't know. Um. Okay, so we've arrived at our destination. It is time to decide if one of our dinosaurs is missing makes the knock list. Ethan, yep. you're our guest. You're up first. Yes or no? Is it joining the likes of GoldenEye and North by Northwest on the knock list? See, part of me wants to just because it would be funny, but I hate myself for it. No, this does not at all. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, the reasons probably speak for themselves, but any any particular reason? Uh, it's very outdated, and films can be outdated, but this one is so outdated in, like, racial depictions, in humour, in plot, in pacing, in editor, in every feasible way. It's just so poorly done, and it's so, so racist. Yeah, uh, Ian... I would say that one of our dinosaurs is missing, should be missing from the knock list. Um, even if you take out the um, the racist representations in this film, it's nowhere near a good film. And uh, from from my understanding, listening to the podcast, the knock list should be a place for the very best. And this doesn't even get close to watchable, really. <laughs> um, so I'm going to say for that reason, uh, I would keep it off of the knock list cam uh it's a hell no from me this movie came out the same year as jaws <laughs> let's think about that 
Look at the craftsmanship on display in the number one movie of the year. And then look at this creaky piece of crap. I mean, like this feels not just in terms of its depictions outdated. In terms of like filmmaking, this feels like it was made decades before where we're going. So uh, this does not represent the best of its era, the best of spy films, the best of Disney films, the best of anything whatsoever. So it's a big no for me. You could have argued those nannies needed a bigger truck. Mm, you could, yeah. yes. They, that's too much coal, though. <laughs> Monty Python and the Holy Grail came out that year, and that's, like, not aged the best, but it's still so much better and entertaining. And funny. Oh, yeah. And funny, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, my vote was already pointless at this stage. It was three no's, so I might as well say yeah. No, I'm going to say no. <laughs> uh, there is no way that one of our dinosaurs is missing is making the knock list i will make sure that doesn't happen this film as as we've said apart from the unforgivable stuff on the side it doesn't do anything to make itself endearing it, it almost isn't trying to be endearing it's just existing and that's why i kind of feel like it should stop it should be extinct i was gonna say that cam thank you for stealing my joke <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. You waited too long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Well, They were so busy wondering if they could make one of our dinosaurs is missing. They didn't think about where they should make one of our dinosaurs is missing. But Ustinov, That's chaos. Uh, he uh, uh, finds a way. <laughs> References to better films. <laughs> yes. What killed the dinosaurs? The spies age. <laughs> well... There we go, folks. The, uh, the dossier on one of our dinosaurs is missing is complete and filed as classified. Hopefully an asteroid lands on it too. <laughs> Ian, Ethan, thank you. And we're sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I promise you one thing, and that is we will have you back and that it will be a much, much better film that potentially stands the chance of being on the knock list, because this was hey. kind of a... Yeah, maybe uh, maybe yeah. one of those cool carry-on films you're talking about. It'll <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, um, be Spies in Disguise where Will Smith is a pigeon. <laughs> I think I've sealed our fate. I think you may have, actually. Yeah, I'm, oh writing it, I'm writing it down. Spies in Disguise. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Um, yeah, you can get your votes in early if you'd like Excellent. <laughs> to save, save yourself the appearance. But no, honestly, thank you both for taking the time to come on, the time to watch the film. We really appreciate it. Um, I'm always talking up Best Film Ever podcast. And, you know, we're good friends on Twitter. We're always tweeting at each other. And I would recommend them to our listeners. I have before we played your advertisement on the, on the show. I wouldn't recommend it just anyone. Um, they are a great podcast, and I think everyone should go check them out. And we want to say a big thank you for, for having us on, uh, even for a film like this. Uh, so the kind of film we're used to, to dealing with, we're used to dealing with the best that cinema has to offer. So it was nice to put our uh, other hats on for, for, for a little while and, and avoid the dinosaur droppings. Uh, but thank you as well. Uh, we, we talk you guys up. I think it's probably just a bit of a mutual admiration society going on. Um, but I think you, we probably started right around the same time frame as well. So it's, it's been fun to watch kind of both of our respective journeys um, going very well. I would, if I don't mind knocking on my wood. Uh, oh, that sounds almost quite. Yeah, I was gonna, maybe don't that say sounds, that one. That sounds, that sounds problematic. Well, it's a good thing this, <laughs> this review had nothing else like that to go off of. Uh, <laughs> But no, just a massive thank you to us for, for, for thinking of us and having us on. 
It was absolute fun. Yeah, it's been great having you on. And again, we will have you back sooner than you think and for a better film, I would say. Huzzah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, of course, guys listening, check out Best Film Ever. Check out Talking to Mickey as well. Check both podcasts out and uh, get some more Ian and Ethan and the rest of the gang in your lives. Um, right, Cam, what are we doing next week? Well, we're going from this to 1964's Goldfinger. No whiplash going on here with quality. <laughs> okay. Uh, I haven't heard of it. Tell me more. Yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to tackling the uh, third Sean Connery James Bond film. Yeah, it's been an interesting uh, journey revisiting the, the Sean Connery films. I I didn't really rank them the way I had originally, but now revisiting them for the podcast. It's been interesting to see the sort of steady increase in consistency that we've had so far. So I'm hoping Goldfinger keeps on going up yeah hopefully so your mission should you choose to accept it is to watch the james bond sean connery classic goldfinger and join us next week you can of course find the knock list at letterbox.com slash spyhards you can find all the films that have made it and films much like one of our dinosaurs is missing that will never ever make anyone's list um and don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week listeners you lose three points you hit a granny